0: Hello, I'm Claire Armistead. Before we hear this week's podcast, we just wanted to point you in the direction of our sponsor, Squarespace. For more information on building beautiful websites, go to squarespace.com. The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast. This week, we're looking at how literature reflects on art and music. We face up to Freud's nemesis, loneliness, which is so often the lot of famous people. What I hadn't realised is that it was the thing that Freud wouldn't deal with. Even Freud Even not And our intrepid reporter, Lindsay Irvin sacrifices himself for the cause by plunging himself into a spirited crowd at a books event sponsored by a Welsh whisky company.
1: People were more or less bathing in cups of Penderyn whisky at the event.
0: But it's back to the sobriety of the studio for our first interview with a writer whose personal experience of loneliness as a single woman adrift in New York inspired a fascinating series of intellectual encounters with some of the Big Apple's most surprising lonely hearts from Andy Warhol to Marlene Dietrich. Olivia Lang is a bit of a connoisseur of solitude having once taken time out of the modern world to spend half a year in the wild in a self-constructed shelter in the middle of a field. But as her most recent book, The Lonely City, makes clear, you can feel just as solitary in a crowded city street as in an open space. And it's no good thinking that connecting with people through social media will solve all your problems,
2: as she reveals in this reading from the book. I found the new apartment the way I always did, by putting an ad on Facebook. It belonged to an acquaintance of an acquaintance, a woman I'd never met. In an email, she told me that the room was very small, with a kitchenette and bathroom, warning me too about the traffic and the neon ads. What she didn't mention was that the building was a refuge, a flagship development run by the charity Common Ground, which rented cheap single rooms to working professionals, in addition to housing a more or less permanent population of the long-term homeless, particularly those with AIDS and serious mental health problems. This was explained to me by one of the two security guards on the front desk who gave me the white electronic card I needed to enter and exit the lobby and took me up to the room to show me how to operate the locks. He'd just started the job and in the elevator he told me about the building's population saying of things I might or might not see if we're not worried about it you don't need to be. The halls were painted hospital green, flushed red and white by wall lights, ceiling lights and exit signs. My room was just big enough to fit a futon and a desk, a microwave, a sink and a small fridge. There were Mardi Gras beads hanging in the bathroom and the walls were lined with books and cuddly toys. The sounds of stereos and television seeped through the walls and outside crowds of people surged intermittently up from the subway at Port Authority. It was the epicentre of the 21st century, and I lived in it accordingly. Every day I'd wake up and before my eyes were even open, I'd drag my laptop into bed and lurch seamlessly into Twitter. It was the first thing I looked at in the last, this descending scroll from mostly strangers, institutions, friends, this ephemeral community in which I was a disembodied and in constant presence. Picking through the litany, the domestic and the civic, Lens solution, book cover, news of a death, protest picture, art opening, joke about Derrida, refugees in the forests of Macedonia, hashtag shame, hashtag lazy, climate change, lost scarf, joke about Daleks, a stream of information, sentiment and opinion that some days, most days maybe, received more attention than anything actual in my life. And Twitter was only the gateway, the portal into the endless city of the internet. Whole days went by on clicking. My attention snared over and over by pockets and ladders of information. An absent, ardent witness to the world, the Lady of Shalott with her back to the window, watching the shadows of the real appear in the lent blue glass of her magic mirror. I used to read like that, back in the age of paper, the finished century, to bury myself in a book. And now I gazed at the screen, my cathected silver lover, It was like being a spy, carrying out perpetual surveillance. It was like becoming a teenager again, plunging into pools of obsession, moving on, riding the rocking swells, the changing surf, reading about hoarding or torture or true crime or the iniquities of the state, reading misspelled chatroom conversation about what happened to Samantha Mathis after River Phoenix died. Sorry to sound patronising, but are you sure you watched this video? the plunge through, the drift, the awful K-hole of recessive links clicking deeper and deeper into the past, stumbling out into the horrors of the present. Courtney Love and Kurt Cobain getting married on a beach, a child's bloodied body on the sand, images that generated emotion overlapping the pointless, the appalling, and the desirable. What did I want? What was I looking for? What was I doing there, hour after hour, contradictory things. I wanted to know what was going on. I wanted to be stimulated. I wanted to be in contact, and I wanted to retain my privacy, my private space. I wanted to click and click and click until my synapses exploded, until I was flooded by superfluity. I wanted to hypnotize myself with data, with colored pixels, to become vacant, to overwhelm any creeping, anxious sense of who I actually was to annihilate my feelings. At the same time, I wanted to wake up, to be politically and socially engaged. And then again, I wanted to declare my presence, to list my interests and objections, to notify the world that I was still there, thinking with my fingers, even if I'd almost lost the art of speech. I wanted to look, and I wanted to be seen, and somehow it was easier to do both, by the mediating screen.
0: Olivia, this is your particular way of relating to loneliness, or one of the ways you relate to loneliness. And this book is a mixture of your experience at the beginning of the 21st century and the experience of a series of artists much earlier on, before Twitter was even a remote possibility, before the internet. But there are themes and there are objects that link your world with their Mm. world, for example, glass, for example, uh, hoarding, you Mm. know, all those that the accumulation of small objects. So these are sort of like motifs of loneliness.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I make these very patterned books. And I think what I really wanted to do was I wanted to start with a personal experience. I did have a period of being lonely in New York. But I also wanted to investigate the subject from multiple angles, which is why I chose this sort of cast of really quite diverse people, so some of them really fit the kind of cliché, the stereotype of the lonely outsider, like like the artist Henry Darger, who was very socially is- isolated, but others like Andy Warhol are incredibly socially engaged at the same time as dealing with issues of isolation in different ways and I was really interested in having this sort of diversity of positions but obviously there needed to be some coherence to the book as well and I think in common with my other books, that tends to happen by way of the patterning of imagery and by way of a sort of recurrence of visual imagery. And here it was, it was absolutely glass and windows, that sense of being cut off and isolated but overexposed. And then the sort of desire to use objects in all sorts of ways, the way that we use smartphones, the way that Warhol used technology, the way that all of these different artists use art as a way of kind of occupying the spaces between them.
0: You start off with Edward Hopper and you centre particularly on one painting Nighthawks which is sort mm. of um, emblematic of the loneliness of New York you point out that there isn't a door in it there's no way out it's sort of we clo. Mm. and one of the things that comes up in that and also is in that passage of your own experience is green <laughs> I'm really struck by <laughs> how much the, that sort of sickly yellow green just runs through the whole book
2: I was so fascinated by that colour. It's funny because I had a whole folder, on it's still on my laptop, that just has that green in all sorts of different films because it seemed like the colour of urban alienation. It's actually, I mean, it's the colour, if you've seen Nighthawks, it's that specific green, which is a colour that only exists after electricity. So it's very much an urban shade. It's got that sort of sickly feeling where it's very hard, it's inimical to contact. It's got that feeling of people not really being able to form intimacy within it. And, I mean, it's genuinely an urban colour. I saw it all the time as I was sort of wandering around New York at night and I was living in Times Square and all these different places. But it's very much there in the urban art as well. So at one point I'm talking about Vertigo and there's a scene that's absolutely saturated with that Nighthawk screen, which is so interesting because I think Hitchcock used Hopper an awful lot and I think he was probably mimicking it deliberately.
0: And that green is is also connected with looking in through windows at night, Mm. i.e. looking as a solitary person walking at night Mm. into windows where there are people. Yeah. But there are people who are maybe quite odd and lonely and disjointed because they're up in a public place after most people have gone to bed, um, which becomes a sort of motif of the art that you look at and the artist's work
2: all these different kinds of separations because I think the experience that the viewer has when they look at Nighthawk, say, or the individual has in the city looking out through a window, is this experience of being slightly cut off and slightly separated from the liveliness of the city but at the same time, like you say, a lot of the scenes that I kind of fix on, and actually that Hopper fixed on in his work as well are these scenes of sort of alienation or, or some kind of problem with intimacy which I think becomes quite fascinating when you're lonely to look at other people's experiences of it and of course there's a parallel there as well isn't there with the internet because you're also, that's another kind of glass that you're looking at into all of these scenes of possibly connection but possibly not. Your
0: previous book The Trip to Echo Spring was about six very famous writers and their relationship with drink. This book is about two very famous artists and several people who are not very famous at all. How did you choose them? Where did you find them? I mean it's a sort of odd collection Mm. of
2: people. It's a really odd collection of people because The the Drinking Book had a very sort of clear cast. I mean, I could have chosen any number of about 30 people, but it had a very clear cast of... They were all, like, big, big American figures. This one, it had to be about outsiders in a way. It had to be about people who'd sort of... Struggled um, with society because one of the things that I was so interested in is how social exclusion makes people lonely. I didn't just want to talk about sort of people with sad individual stories. I wanted to look at people who'd really thought about how social forces had excluded them. So the real answer, as with Echo Spring, is it was people. It was people I loved, and with this book, it's people I really genuinely loved very deeply so it was art that I was drawn to at the time it, that is absolutely true it was sort of I, I say that in the book and it's not a kind of glib thing it it was the art that I was really digging into in order to resolve questions of my own Hopper I knew would be there from the beginning because it, you couldn't write a book about urban loneliness without Hopper and then David Wonorowicz and Henry Darger were both artists that I was very drawn to. Darger, I, I wanted to talk about the sort of isolation hoarding that he'd lived in, and Wannerowicz, who probably most people don't know in this country. He was a he was an American artist and AIDS activist, and he died of AIDS very young, the age of 37, in 1992. He's the heart of the book, he's, he's really the central character for me. And he was there because he Wrote about and made art around the isolating forces of society and ways to resist them. So he was this incredibly sort of positive, energetic truth-telling character that I am compelled by and so he had to be there. And then there are all kinds of peripheral characters as well who, who are really kind of central to the story but don't occupy so much space in it and that's people like Valerie Solanas, Edward Hopper's wife, Joe Hopper, Greta Garbo's in there. Greta Garbo, who, who, who Warhol sort of stalks with his camera. <laughs> it's such a great story. That's the kind of joyous thing that I found in the diaries one day and I didn't know that was going to be there. So Warhol is... Warhol confesses to his, um, to his secretary that he'd seen Greta Garbo in the street and he couldn't resist following her around New York for a while. Eventually she went into a TV shop and she was buying TVs, which is the sort of thing Warhol loved because he's very covetous about the kind of objects other people are buying. So he sort of snuck a photo of her. <laughs> Warhol is fascinating because he he
0: was so at the centre of everything, mm. a scene that he created and gathered multiple around him. Multiple scenes, yeah. Multiple scenes, and, and his art was to do with mass manufacture of stuff. Mm. And yet you have this image of him in a signing, somebody... Pulling off his wig, and the mm. idea of this sort of somebody who'd created a public persona because actually, underneath, he was nobody knew what he was like. He wore a corset because of the because injuries, of the because of Solanus having shot him and that he was riddled with bullet holes. Yeah. And wore a wig, which he'd always, which was a sort of, which he put on crookedly, deliberately to draw attention yeah. to it. Such a
2: strange character. He's so fascinating to me. And I mean, the diaries are ginormous. They're probably about 700 pages long, and there are not really any scenes of emotion in them at all including things like his lover dying of AIDS. No emotion about that. The one sort of huge scene of emotion in there is this wig incident, and it was absolutely heartbreaking to him. He was he was devastated. This girl came up to him in risoles and yanked his wig off in front of a signing queue, and he pulled up his, his Calvin Klein hoodie and he carried on signing, but it was as if he'd been torn to pieces. He really relied on material objects to make him feel held together like you say he, he was bound into this tiny little corset i mean his corset fits me and i'm kind of small but it's a 28 inch waist it's this extraordinarily small thing and the wigs all these things that he he says repeatedly they made him feel glued together and just this dreadful scene so you get this sense of a much more vulnerable character than we're familiar with which i found really exciting you mentioned that
0: one of his lovers had died of AIDS. He didn't actually die of AIDS. No. But but there are two of the characters in this book do, which is one of the under-themes in a way, is that sex is a way that people try to find companionship. And okay, yet, sure. particularly during the 1980s when AIDS was this sort of, horror. Mm. It actually locked them into the ultimate loneliness, which was to die before their time.
2: To die young and also to be stigmatised. I mean, I knew I wanted to talk about those sort of stigmatising forces and AIDS was a way for me to do that. But I mean, I could have written this book in a different way and it could have been about the refugee crisis. It's exactly the same thing. It's those forces in which a group of people become beyond the pale and horrifying and people begin to treat them in extraordinarily cruel ways. So I wanted to use AIDS to really sort of think think through that and David Warnorowicz died at the age of 37 which is the age I was when I was writing the book and that fact really hit me hard it stayed with me constantly
0: he said um, my queerness was a wedge that was slowly separating me from a sick society mm. so there's that real sense of uh, that idea of a wedge is is mm. really powerful
2: I love that yeah so he just refuses the identity of victim what he does is use his exclusion as a way to shine a light back on the society and look at the forces and resist the forces that are causing those kind of exclusions his work to me feels incredibly important right now it feels like he's a voice that really has a lot to say about the kind of world we're in right now
0: Another person who we haven't mentioned is klaus nomi who is a singer amazing singer i've just been listening mm. to him all afternoon and got completely obsessed with this lonely little um piero figure
2: almost yeah yeah
0: who yeah. also was another of the character who died of AIDS
2: yeah and i mean he has this extraordinarily He he was a downtown artist he came from germany and he lived in the east village and he was a countertenor at a point when there was no career for a countertenor in opera so he'd begun in um berlin opera but there was nothing for him there, which is really weird to think of in sort of the era of and Davis. But anyway, that, that was that moment. So he came to New York and he created this identity as this sort of um, post-punk pop star. And he had this amazing appearance, white face, black um, hair, black lipstick, sort of very, very stylized. He did a performance with David Bowie on Saturday Night Live where he really looks, you know, entrancing, kind of like a robot from space alien, all all of these sort of different ideas going on in his outfits. And he was the first famous person to die of AIDS. He was the first person in sort of the public domain to die of AIDS at a point when it was a death sentence but also this sort of monstrous, terrifying death where his friends would come to see him in the hospital and, you know, have absolute barrier nursing and people wouldn't want to hug him or touch him. So the loneliness of Naomi's no death again really, really wanted me. And somebody who is very beautiful
0: yeah. and very carefully composed who then disappeared into sarcoma, basically, Carposi sarcoma, didn't he? So his skin was getting more and more blotchy, he was getting more and more emaciated. So he
2: performed wearing this ruff. There's an extraordinary performance, which is on YouTube, where he's performing um, the cold song from Purcell's King Arthur, which is a very eerie song anyway. And he's wearing this like the Court of King James kind of outfit. He's wearing um, hose and this white ruff, which was to hide the Carposi's on his neck. And he sings this song which is really about kind of giving in to death at the moment when he, it isn't public yet, but he is very, very sick with AIDS and, I mean, that's one of the most, it gives you chills, that performance. It's wonderful.
0: I'd like to talk a little bit about the genre of this book because it strikes me this is your third book. Mm. And your first we've talked a little bit about your second about authors and alcohol. Your first was Following the River Ooze, in which Virginia Woolf committed suicide. So, 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 cheerful.
2: so, so yeah, you're books. a bit you're a bit gloomy, <laughs> a aren't you? Downer. <laughs> so what's with the gloom? <laughs> I'm incredibly drawn to um these sort of subjects and to kind of wrestling with dark subjects, but in ways that are as beautiful, engaged, politically engaged as as I can manage. And I hate being bound by genre, so I don't really like to write memoir or biography or cultural history or travel writing. I like to have that very clattered sort of writing. And I suppose at the beginning I fitted into that, the new nature writing, and now I've kind of gone somewhere very different with it but it's, it's the kind of writing that excites me, I suppose. So,
0: because you could see this book as a series of cultural essays, each one... But it's
2: not. <laughs> it's one thing.
0: <laughs> so, so, it is absolutely one thing, of course, mm. but I'm interested in how you came upon this very unusual structure, and a structure that I could imagine putting in proposal to a publisher, and they're saying, oh, no, that sounds a bit art history for us. <laughs> and then you make this thing that is just absolutely draws you into it.
2: Yeah, and actually I did have to fight quite a lot um, about the cast list. When I did do the proposal, there was considerable anxiety about people like Klaus Nomi and David Wonarevich and um, my, my editor wanted me to put Madonna in, he was really keen that I put Madonna and Donna Karan in but I convinced him and I think the thing that was amazing about this book is that I did have a sense that these people were going to have larger cultural moments coming quite soon and in fact Wonorovich has a huge retrospective of the new Whitney so there is this sort of sense that they're becoming more of the sort of culture at large but yeah it was a bit of a battle. <laughs>
0: And you're a bit of a hobo, aren't you? Is that that's become part of your aesthetic. So you, you actually you <laughs> once
2: you once worked. I do have the hobo aesthetic.
0: <laughs> you once worked at The Guardian, but then you went off on your travels and you've been to you've walked the ooze, you've mm. in this case gone and put yourself out in, in New York without anybody, but you were there you were. Yeah. Subletting. Yeah. Becoming part of the sort of strange subletting culture.
2: Yeah, which was a fascinating culture to be in. And I mean, I still do it quite a lot because I'm still very um, attached to New York. But it was really interesting to just... It was it was an odd moment in my life because I was in my mid-30s. Everyone around me was getting married. People had regular jobs. I was I was writing and that was going fairly well. But my emotional life was kind of a car crash. So I didn't have any ties and I was very frustrated about spending all this time with people whose lives were looking very different. And my my sort of friends, my community in New York was much more around people making art of various kinds. So it felt like a more congenial place for me. But at the same time, it was very isolating and I was just... um, I was just drifting from place to place and sort of living in these extraordinary apartments in the East Village and then the Upper West and then come back to Times Square and sort of having these immersions into other people's lives that is a very odd way to live. But a lot of people are doing it now, I think. It felt very of its time as well. Is it something that you would not want to repeat? I mean, because Mm.
0: it is quite, it obviously was quite a bleak period for you.
2: Yeah. I mean I'm in a different place now and in some ways my life when I'm in New York which is still for a few months of the year is similar but it's just much richer it's much more populated because I've been around for a lot longer and I know people much better and closer to people. If I decided that I was going to move to Hong Kong I expect I'd have a very similar experience but I'll never repeat that experience in New York because after a while you can't anymore and I mean you don't want to anymore. I was very at the same time as finding it very painful I was very interested but I think the desire to inhabit that sort of emotional space has kind of ended for me.
0: And what you've done is what all seven of your characters do, which is to make art out of the experience of a sort of distress. And you have this line from the German psychiatrist Frieda From reichmann which I was mm. fascinated by, which he said, the writer who wishes to elaborate on loneliness is faced with a serious terminological handicap. Loneliness seems to be such a painful, frightening experience that people do practically everything to avoid it. What I hadn't realised is that it was the thing that Freud wouldn't deal with. Even Freud Even Freud touch it.
2: Yeah. yeah, it's so fascinating. There's so much resistance around it. And yet, I think if you do engage with it, I'm sure that there are people who thought, I don't want to pick this book up, it's going to make me feel lonely. And I think it does the opposite in the way that the art of loneliness does. I mean, the art that's made around the experience of loneliness, which is that it is very permissive. It dissolves some of the shame. And there's something that um, David Wonarevich said in an interview with his friend Nan Golden, which was, she said, what do you want from your work? And he said, if it can make people feel... Less alienated, that's all I want from it. and that seems to me very much something about if you're honest about your own experiences of isolation, it does have that effect. It does do that. It's like magic.
3: <laughs>
0: the Lonely City: Adventures in the Art of Being Alone by Olivia Lang is out now, published by Canongate.
2: Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace. If you want to build a website, you have many options. But if you want to build it beautiful, there's only one. Squarespace gives you the power of world-class design, so you can do more than create a website. You can set yourself apart. See why some of the world's most influential people, brands, and businesses choose Squarespace. To start your free trial, visit squarespace.com forward slash Guardian.
0: There wasn't much sign of loneliness at the launch of this year's Penderin Prize, an award new to me, though it is actually in its second year. Culminating in a weekend festival in Dylan Thomas's hometown of Larne in early April, it's a celebration of the diverse literature of the music world, spanning from serious historical surveys to revealing first-person accounts. We sent Lindsay Irving to mingle with the stars at the whiskey-fueled party at which the shortlist was revealed. And who should he bump into? But comedian and broadcaster Robin Ince, who turns out to be one of the judges. So who is he rooting for?
1: Well, I do think that Stuart Cosgrove's book was for me the one that had moments that were revelatory. So as someone who loves music, I didn't think I was looking for it in books, But there was, after starting, going, yep, this book has changed my view of this particular era, of these labels, of this area. And so Stuart Cosgroves. I also just love Tracy Thorne's book because from the moment that I started reading it, this whole way that she managed to go into the mindset of what it is to be a singer, the terror and what creates the voice that comes out, I thought was beautifully described. Richard Thomas, you're the founder of the Penderin Prize, uh, which is now in its second year, is that Second year now. And why did it feel like there was a need for, or a niche for a prize like this?
3: There was a prize for everything else. Science fiction, crime, romantic fiction, every niche you could think of had a prize. For some reason, there wasn't a music prize. Myself and John, who I do the... Festival in we we're, were talking and saying, why isn't there a you know, music book prize? And, and does it feel
1: to you that there's uh, more, much more, as it feels to me, serious literature about uh, popular music than, uh, than ten years ago or before?
3: I think this year the long list is very impressive. It, covers everything from traditional autobiographies to biographies to songwriting royalties to the history of music seen through the equipment used to working in the record shop. So, at groups, Detroit 67, I thought it was wonderful how it combines um, Town and Motown and the MC5, and it made sense. Costello's book is as good as an autobiography you're ever going to get. John Savage's 1966 book is wonderful. It just takes one year and makes a six, seven hundred page book out of it. And it's fascinating. And
1: were you a judge, which I don't think you are, if you were, which one would you shout for?
3: I'll go Elvis Costello, Paddy Smith, John Savage, Stephen Cosgrove.
1: Right, Okay, that narrows it down a little bit.
3: Believe me, it's been that hard. It's been that hard.
1: So, Green Garside from Scriptability, you're one of the judges. Can you reveal one or two of the books that you'll be shouting for when you and the other judges lock antlers? Okay, uh,
4: Stuart Cosgrove's Detroit 67, I think, was an immaculately researched and fascinating book from which I learned a lot. Although I have to say I learned a lot from many of the books that I read. I was genuinely fascinated by everything from Clinton Halen to uh, Dave Haslam to John Savage. They're all really useful books for me in terms of uh, learning something about you know, the history of my industry and my culture. I, I feel very grateful to the Pandaren Award just for giving me the opportunity, well, having forced me to sit down and read all this stuff. And is it your impression that the prize is recognising a growth in serious literature about popular music? There seems to be more of it. Yes, apparently so. In fact, it's uh, there's a uh, the floodgates are open. I don't know. There's been uh, an awful lot of. Uh autobiographies and a lot of, the, lot of them, refreshingly, from women musicians and I think that's because the industry caught on to how well uh, both Viv Albertine's books sold and, uh, before that, uh, Paddy Smith's. And, and those books, uh,
1: the books are selling in a way that records themselves aren't so much anymore. Do you think that's driving the, uh, the production of the, all those memoirs?
4: I don't know. Or I mean, you know, all I can recall is that uh, in conversation with Viv Albertine, she seems to be very much happier now as an as a, an author than she is or was as a musician, and that's really quite a fascinating change of state of affairs that I wouldn't have imagined would have been the case some years ago.
0: That was Green Gartside from British new wave band Scritti Politti. So we dragged Lindsay away from the party to ask him for some insider info, such as, does the fact that this features books about the music world make it a particularly glamorous prize?
1: It is, yeah. um, It is moderately starry. The huge names are, you know, staying in in Hollywood, as you might imagine. But the judges include singers Green Gartside and Eliza Carthy. And then there's a couple of very famous broadcasters, Annie Nightingale... And Stuart McConey. There's also a comedian, Robin Ince, and uh, there's also a, a pair of celebrated journalists, more celebrated than, than uh, you and I. Than you and I. Imagine <laughs> that, uh, who are Jude Rogers and Mark Ellen.
0: And it's sponsored by a Welsh whiskey company, and it's it's linked to a Welsh festival. Apparently, a Welsh so. whiskey and company. And I did.
1: There were people were more or less bathing uh, in uh, cups of. Uh, and whiskey at the event the other night and it, it's a very distinguished um malt and uh
0: before we sound either like you sound like a lush and we sound like an advertising yeah, company that's let's, true, yes, let's yes, move yes. on to the to the yeah. shortlist because it's a very very wide range of books and there are six books on the shortlist lindsay will you give us the lowdown on them
1: yes there are three books by musicians themselves that have made made the list, and three by professional writers. Running through them in alphabetical order, uh, we have Detroit 67, The Year That Changed Soul by Stuart Cosgrove, 1966, uh, one year on, 1966, The Year That the Decade Exploded by John Savage. Uh, We also have Elvis Costello's memoir, Unfaithful Music and Disappearing Ink, and then Electric Shock, From the Gramophone to the iPhone, 125 Years of Pop Music by Peter Doggett. Patty Smith crops up with M Train, her second book. And we also have another second book from Tracy Thorne, the Everything But The Girl singer, this time called Naked at the Albert Hall, The Inside Story of Singing.
0: They're all quite of a certain age, aren't they?
1: Yes, it does seem to be writing about and also reading about uh, pop and rock music does seem to be something of a middle-aged thing infused with nostalgia for the stroppy rock rock and roll youngsters we all of us used to be. And this is a sort of imaginative, you might think, to some degree, recuperation of that.
0: Were there any books that were on the long list that you regret? I mean, for example, there was Chrissy Hind was there. Chrissy um,
1: Hines was there a Grace memoir Jones. from Grace Jones, I'll never write my memoirs. And actually she didn't entirely, because quite a lot of it was written by Paul Morley, the venerable music journalist and record mogul. Apparently that's pretty good, actually. And there's a lovely biography of Sandy Denny, the rather tragic singer from the sixties. Uh, By Mick Horton, that didn't make it either. And there's a very charming, uh, somewhat parochial uh, memoir of life in a record shop in Bristol called Original Rockers by Richard King, which is beautifully written.
0: In terms of the biographies, it just strikes me that there is a moment here, isn't there? Patti Smith and Elvis Costello, who've both become, they've sort of become. Could we say international treasures? They've come into a sort of, I mean, not, not that they've ever really gone away, but then they are well, sort sort of absolutely moved up there, from aren't they? Being,
1: and they've also moved from being somewhat dangerous figures who might startle your parents and more sort of sober people around you to reliably genial and intelligent social commentators. So there's a, you know, change in tone, those people, which kind of matches writing angry lyrics, moving on to writing sober Reflections on music and memoirs,
0: and then among them, there, there are a couple of more journalistic books. So you've got um, John Savage, for example.
1: Yes, John Savage has has looked into uh, nineteen sixty six in uh, quite a lot of detail. So it's not academic, but it focuses on the music exploding at that time, from uh, the Beatles uh, hitting their sort of psychedelic period. To soul singers like Wilson Pickett and crazy psychedelic bands like Love, who arrived uh, alongside the fancy new drugs that uh, went best with it.
0: So he's just done one year, 1966. He's just done
1: one one year, and, and then he's... you
0: go to Peter Doggett's book, Electric Shock, which yeah, goes, <laughs> which is 125 on a... years. <laughs>
1: yes, yeah, which is huge, and weirdly, more or less the same number of pages to cover a century and a quarter are taken in this, 720 of them as Elvis Costello takes to uh, tell the story of his own as yet unfinished life.
0: One could imagine a face-off between 1966 and 1967.
1: They do. <laughs> they yeah, They do. Uh, do bookend quite neatly.
0: So the Stuart Cosgrove is Detroit 1967. Yeah. Which would you go for, 1966 or
1: 1967? Well, uh, 1967 is a more uh, compelling year, I think, because Stuart Cosgrove's account of how a very turbulent year in Detroit, uh, as a civil rights struggle was beginning to founder, describes the birth of a new era of black music, as well as the birth of very dangerous, angry garage rock. But it's told through the distressing story of a, a year of riots and police murders and the you know, ongoing decline of Detroit, all of which continue to this day. And it come that actually follows the 1966 failure of the Civil Rights Act. And Cosgrove goes into a lot of detail about that, as well as revealing great piquant details about uh, the black music that was happening then, such as the great timeless party anthem Dancing in the Streets by Martha Reeves was actually in that year adopted as uh, an angry rallying cry for the civil rights struggle in Detroit.
0: Do you feel that music Publishing is going through a good time or is this just normal? I mean it, it's an area that the, these books churn out, they're generally for fans. They tend not to darken the portals of well, national newspapers very much.
1: Fans. Well they used to be literature for fanatics and they you know and were led with glamorous pictures. But I think this sort of continues a development in culture where serious people like The Guardian have begun taking popular culture seriously. I am, alas, old enough to remember a time not that long ago when The Guardian would never have considered publishing a concert review or an album review. But now it's recognised as it is significant. And there is a generation of people who grew up reading the rock press as it grew more seriously that have taken music in earnest and produced books, and that has filtered through. It began, I think... Well, John Savage's history of punk rock, England's Dreaming, began, you know, a serious literary engagement with uh, with popular music, which continued through Simon Reynolds's history of post-punk, which was kind of a watershed, but that came out in the early 90s, I think. But it is, the field is filling up, and uh, as I think is evident from the shortlist, it's kind of getting stronger, I think.
0: I'm going to ask you, put you on the spot. Uh, this prize is going to be awarded on April the third at the Larn festival. At the Larn festival, which yes. is in where in Wales is Larn, Do we know?
1: Larn is on the Carmarthenshire coast, and everybody. I mean, I don't. Again, I don't want to slip into marketing, but everybody says it's. I mean, it's a it's a wonderful little festival. And it's very Llan. It's there's less than a, a thousand people live there, and it's very in, informal and comedians and singers and writers.
0: So who's going singers. to
1: win it? Uh, I have a fairly strong idea of who's going to win it, but I don't wish to... Who do you want to win it? Who does your soul speak for? Well, I would like to see Detroit 67 win, but simply because I haven't actually read it all, but I'd like that he's taking music very seriously as a sort of bloodline of popular feeling, which I, I think is... It's, he's written a serious history, and I think it warrants that. And it is... You know, that end of the civil rights struggle is tragic but uh, fascinating still, and particularly in the, you know what's going on in America still, Black Lives Matter. Uh, that message was being proclaimed and not heard then as it isn't now.
0: The Penderin Prize will be awarded at this year's Larne Weekend Festival in West Wales on the 12th of April. And that's it for this week. Thanks to Lindsay Irving, Green Site. Robin Ince, Richard Thomas and Olivia Lang. Next week, we're looking at when poetry gets political. We'll speak to Marsha Aloykina from Pussy Riot about the poems she turned to while imprisoned in a hard labour camp in Russia. Holly McNish will talk about the politics of reclaiming the female body during and after childbirth. And Luke Wright takes on the new labour generation in his latest work, What I Learned from Johnny Bevan. You can find us online or install us on your smartphone by searching for Guardian Books Podcast. Until then, from me, Claire Armatstead, and my producer Susanna Trezilian, goodbye and thanks for listening.
4: For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.